Welcome to New Mexico in Focus. I am your host, Kevin McDonald, an executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. Today is Friday, November 19th, 2021. And we are back in full swing this week. We did have issues last week. We had a COVID scare here in the studio. Glad to report that none of the cases were serious and everyone is on the road to recovery. And we are back at it with new content for you this week. Uh, So thanks for your patience there. We hope you are staying safe and healthy. Got my COVID booster yesterday. Arms hurting a little bit today, but otherwise so far so good, of course. Here in New Mexico, we are one of the few states where the booster is available to all adults over 18. And so if you've had the other shots uh, and don't uh, have differing opinions there about the vaccine, we encourage you to get that done and help us because the cases are still largely out of control here in New Mexico. We need to get these numbers headed in the right direction. Okay, enough of that for now. Want to jump right into this week, another hot button issue you are probably following, seeing the news coverage on. The New Mexico Department of Education is updating their social studies standards. It's something that hasn't been done in at least a decade, hearing some different numbers there from different people, but 2009 is often pointed to, so long overdue to update these standards. It's something that happens regularly. You may remember a few years ago, This happened with science standards that also created a bit of a hubbub as everything these days seems to be political. And of course, this all revolves around the idea of critical race theory, which is basically a political uh, tossing back and forth something that people on both sides of the political aisle use now. Uh, And so we wanted to dive into whether or not the social studies standard updates is an attempt to try to bring CRT into the classroom as opponents uh, deem or define CRT anyway. Tons of stuff to get into here. You're going to hear a lot here coming up. The first thing you're going to hear are some comments from people who tuned into a nearly six-hour public forum about a week ago to make their voices heard on this. We uh, streamed the whole thing. You can find it on our website. We'll put a link But it was pretty split, actually, Uh, about a handful more comments of people in favor of these updates and these changes than those against. And we encourage you to read up on what all the changes are, in fact. And the final decision from PED won't come until maybe December, probably more like January. But so first up, public comment, a smattering of that. Then we're going to bring you part of an interview that Gene Grant did on Facebook Live with the curriculum director for the Department of Education, uh, Jacqueline Costales, who talked to us about what exactly is in the changes, why they're making the changes, or proposing the changes, I should say, and why now. So trying to get to the heart of what is actually going on here, what the motivations were. Not surprisingly, PED says this isn't critical race theory. This isn't about making Caucasian students feel bad about themselves. It's about inclusivity. Um, That is their uh, claim there. And lastly, you're going to hear from our line opinion panel weighing in with their thoughts on all of this. And joining us on our line opinion panel this week, 
we have regulars, Dee Dee Feldman, she's a former state senator, and Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group PR. And we welcome back Dave Mulryan of the group, Everybody Votes. He founded that and always love having Dave on our virtual roundtable. So tons to dig into, and we'd love to hear where you fall on this issue about the social studies standards. You can always leave us a message here on the podcast or reach out to us on any of our social media channels. We got Facebook, we got YouTube, we got Twitter, we got Instagram. Whatever you use, whatever you prefer, hit us up there. Let us know what you think or what we missed in all of this discussion this week. But here now, the public speaks out. The current rule, as it's written, it is it's giving a lot of power to one person. There's no checks and balances, and there's no explanations. This proposal has caused great concern across our community, especially the age level at which many of the ethnic, cultural, and identity standards are proposed to be introduced. It's a first step. It's a first step because there's still much to include in terms of the tribal knowledge we all have. Um, We've needed the revisions for many years. Much has happened in both the state, the United States and the world that is excluded. Uh, Many people are excluded except for the viewpoint of the quote unquote conquerors. The added ethnic, cultural and identity study standards in almost every grade level leave open a clear and definitive line between us and them. I am incredibly concerned that the identity sections of these standards haven't been developed in a way that will encompass everyone. I worry that the vagueness leaves us with the same problem that we've had all along, which is marginalizing others. I feel that our educators will need much more training and education of their own to effectively teach with these new standards. When I reviewed the proposed social studies standards created, I did not see a curriculum that outlined that specifically teaches our students about critical race theory, but rather a standard that simply covers the basics of racial and marginalized history of America. This movement to repeal the current proposed social studies standards based on the concern that there is a bias towards racial, progressive, and or liberal themes is a political strategy that works to uphold a standard of whiteness and ignorance in the accurate telling of American history. It pits race against race and focuses on inequality. I also found these standards focus on differences instead of similarities. These standards are negative, they are divisive, and they encourage minority children to be victims instead of empowering children and other children taught that they are oppressors all based on color of their skin. As a mother of three white boys in this culture, I think it's really important that my sons learn um, the full truth of the history of the United States and New Mexico, and that they learn about people of different cultures and different circumstances than their own. The standards will provide for a more accurate representation of our complex history and allow students to develop the civic and analytical thinking skills essential to thrive in our diverse society. To understand civics, governance, and power, students need to understand different cultures and the contributions that diversity has had on the state and nation we live in today. The relationships between people, places, and environments and the interconnections amongst individuals, groups, and institutions needs to be acknowledged. This is the right move 
that the public education department is going forward with the new social studies curriculum. I fully support this decision. This is way overdue. There's been plenty of time for public comment and the time is right now for our children to be seen and heard. Our BIPOC children, our LGBTQIA plus children are part of our communities. They are not political statements. They are humans. They deserve to be in a safe academic environment where they are seen and that where they can recognize themselves. Right now, we're pleased to be joined by Jacqueline Costales. She's the director of New Mexico Public Education Department's Curriculum in Instruction Division. Welcome, Jacqueline. Really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. We really appreciate it. Uh, let's start with the nuts and bolts here. According to information uh, put out by your department, these changes are meant to address, I'm going to quote here, the increasingly diverse perspectives and histories of people of the peoples of New Mexico, end quote. Can you explain exactly how those perspectives manifest themselves in a K through 12 education program? Sure, so our goal for the redevelopment of the New Mexico Social Studies Standards uh, is to create uh, standards that are culturally responsive and that focus on the knowledge, skills, and dispositions critical to ensuring all students in the state are college career and civic ready. Uh, the revisions provide a framework for introducing historically accurate information in our social studies classrooms. Um, curriculum for implementing these standards, so how students will meet and achieve the learning goals articulated therein will be determined at the local level. Mm -hmm. A standard is like an umbrella, uh, and then curriculum is inclusive of the individual lessons and plans and the materials that are chosen uh, by the schools and the um, within the, each community. Jacqueline, I'm curious, uh, when did the idea come about to make these changes? Why now for PED? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say at the national, um, sort of the national best practice across all of the states is to um, redevelop standards every 10 to 15 years right in there. Um, these standards have not, our social studies standards in New Mexico have not undergone a significant revision um, for almost 20 years. So when you think about uh, what has happened just since the turn of the century, it's really important um, that we update the standards, um, both in terms of the historical facts um, that have been added to that tapestry, if you will, to that, um, that the history. Um, but also to assure, again, that our students are being asked to practice um, as they grow from five-year-olds in kindergarten all the way um, up to their graduation um, in those areas. And our students, just quite frankly, it's time. They deserve um, to have updated um, standards uh, that challenge their thinking. Uh, and actually, our teachers, um, our teachers really look to us to assure that what they're teaching is the most up-to-date information. So mm -hmm. I think it was a combination of all of that. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk about process and who's behind the changes. My understanding is a lot of teachers themselves were part of this process statewide. T tell us about that. That's exactly right, uh, Jean. So actually it's been about a 16 month process up to now. Um, we started actually with the visioning committee of experts um, from across the state higher ed, um, tribal um, education leaders, um, various museum-based experts, um, those people that really um, are entrenched and considered experts in the field of the social sciences. And they uh, first helped us to develop 
um, and begin our visioning uh, for, for the state update. And then um, once that started, we um, launched an application for K-12 educators across the state. So teachers, administrators, principals, um, any of the educators that were interested in participating who applied, they shared information in that application about their content expertise, uh, their expertise and experience in um, revising curriculum or standards, um, and their classroom experiences. And so 64 were chosen to be part of our writing committees, um, and they have expertise at all levels, K to 12, and they represent all of the geographical areas of New Mexico. The new content standards are designed to teach topics and I'm going to quote here again, developmentally appropriate ways. Can you describe exactly what that means? Because I want to get into some of the pushback you're receiving. So what does that exactly mean when you say that to somebody, a parent or, or someone? How are they supposed to take that in? Yeah, so I think um, developmentally appropriate means that it is um, aimed at the age level of the student within mm -hmm. uh, their, you know, um, the, the place where they are in their growth and development. And so I think in the public schools uh, that translates uh, usually to the grade level they are at. So we can take some of the major um, concepts and context that is written into the standards. And um, actually it's sort of, that is the magic that the teacher, the educator does. Um, so we can take topics, major strands and anchors in the social studies standards like civics, economics, geography, history, mm -hmm. um, and create lessons um, and classroom involvement, activity, projects, um, assignments, so on and so forth, uh, that is aimed at the, um, the level that the student is currently at. You know, you mentioned before the four main pillars that we all know about from our earlier years in school, civics, economics, geography, and history. But this other leg, um, state wants to add ethnic, cultural, and identity studies as well. And I think for a lot of folks, that identity studies is probably the, the hang up. I'm curious the kind of feedback you're getting. You've opened up for public comment. You're hearing from folks who are uncomfortable. What's your sense of, is there a common thread of what you're hearing uh, of comfort or discomfort from folks who are not so crazy about this idea so far? Yeah, I actually think we are getting um, common threads for sure. I think um, what I am hearing as I read, um, you know, right now we have over 1,100 pages of written feedback. And so um, we are dedicated to reading every single word and have been as it's been coming in. And so what I really see is um, the, uh, the care um, and the unity we have as a state around um, the, uh, how we educate our students. And from that perspective, I really value that um, information. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, there are some that are, um, because it's not, it, it hasn't been something, it, uh, it wasn't present perhaps when, you know, I was in kindergarten a gazillion years ago in the 70s. Um, we were learning those um, very specific strands that we talked about before. Mm -hmm. However, the experiences and the historical story um, did address those things. If you just think about the civil rights movement, it was in there. So the strand of ethnic, cultural, and identity studies uh, supports us in assuring, um, it's like a check mark in mm -hmm. assuring that all of our students, every mm -hmm. single student, right, is cared for in the classroom, in the classroom discourse, in the lesson plans that are developed um, uh, by teachers and in the materials chosen. Mm -hmm. um, and then in terms of the inquiry strand, um, that is absolutely critical um, in our 
aim to assure that our students um, are ready for college and career readiness. Mm -hmm. um, I'll also, I just want to point out something. Um, I wouldn't say, I think it's incidental um, is a nice way to describe it, but we are at a time where um, the state um, has had to recognize um, what has been found in the Yazi Martinez um, um, case. Right. And, um, the, and what was found is that there are certain subgroups um, of our students that haven't had um, the access um, to being college and career um, ready uh, that each subgroup should deserve. And those subgroups that were listed um, uh, included um, our Native American students, our English language learners, our students with disabilities, our low socioeconomic students. It covers a vast sort of landscape of our student body across the state. And those two strands incidentally um, actually support and assure that every single student can recognize themselves in the classroom, can recognize um, the history that has occurred, both the good and the bad. Not every piece of history about our incredible country mm -hmm. is positive, right? There are some dark stories to be told in the um, in the history of our um, country, but there's also some glorious stories. And we wanna make sure through that inquiry strand that students have the ability to take in information, to decipher it, to decipher it, to digest it, mm -hmm. to communicate with others about it, to share their opinion, to listen to the opinions of other students. Um, again, all in a developmentally appropriate way. What do you say to folks out there who say this is turning history political, that this is teaching kids how to hate our country, how to take some of those dark things you mentioned before and make those, that the point of our history instead of the good stuff. What do, you, what do you say to the parents who feel this is, and there's a quote about this, it's tilting towards progressives. Does PED have an answer to that? Um, well, yeah, I, I don't know if, um, if I would say we have an answer to that. Mm -hmm. I think that as a statewide community, we're all in this together. Um, and actually, there is nothing in any set of standards, uh, social studies or otherwise, um, where, uh, where we would see as one of the outcomes um, some, some kind of slant sort of against our country. That is not the purpose of this. The purpose is to assure that all students are recognized as they um, uh, and exposed to uh, and are uh, uh, the stories of all um, of all peoples of our state, our country, um, and of the world. Um, uh, there is, um, I don't want to say two sides to every story because I believe historical uh, data is factual, mm -hmm. but there are different perspectives. I mean, if you would have asked someone from England how they felt about our revolution, their opinion would have been very different than the colonists. Mm -hmm. A set of historical facts no doubt, mm -hmm. but there would have been two understandings about how those events unraveled. That's just sort of a, a general example that we can all relate to sure. given the, um, the founding of our country. But all of history sort of needs to have that approach and we need to make sure that students can have um, civil discourse in a developmentally appropriate way so that their practice when they enter into uh, their adult lives, whether they choose college uh, or career, and that they can be informed, participating citizens that um, that can vote um, their mind and their heart um, and be um, 
assured that they understand the topics of the day. Well, Jacqueline, thank you very much. We really appreciate your time. Thank you for the opportunity. And we want to get some more thoughts on this curriculum debate with this week's virtual line opinion panel. Back with us this week is line regular and former state senator Dee Dee Feldman. We also welcome back Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group Public Relations Company. And Dave Mulryan is back in our Zoom room. He's the founder of the organization you might know of, Everybody Votes. Let's get right to the meat of what is obviously a hot button issue, guys, not just in New Mexico, but across the country. The loaded phrase of, quote, critical race theory, end quote, is bandied about on a regular basis. Simple question, Tom, is that what's happening here in New Mexico as well? Well, it's definitely getting uh, a lot of discussion right now. You mm -hmm. know, obviously this is something that, uh, you know, the current uh, uh, public education secretary, uh, Kurt Steinhaus, really wants to be able to include in the conversation. It was an initiative that was actually started about 16 months ago. And, uh, you know, through that, we were able to, you know, see a couple of different transitions in the public education department, but these, uh, you know, priority of updating the social study curriculum remained. And so, you know, Kurt Seinhaus runs a good shop. I think there's a lot of good conversation. What I think is always important to have in these types of situations is balance. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to have a balanced discussion. I don't think it's a time to make up for lost time. Uh, you know, because, you know, we, we have, there's a lot of, uh, you know, really important information that needs to be updated in the social study curriculum. Mm -hmm. And I think that, uh, you know, calmer minds need to be able to prevail uh, because I could see very easily, as we've already seen, how uh, these conversations can further divide uh, our state and people's perceptions on public education. Good point there. Uh, Didi, I got a question for you, kind of a straight up question. Critics contend the PED is trying to codify this uh, CRT, are they right? These are regulations. Mm -hmm. uh, these are regulations. These are not laws. Mm -hmm. So the answer is no. Uh, there is no no codification here, and that it's something that the Department of Education does regularly, mm -hmm. and uh, and and it's good that is periodically reviewed, um, so that it can be updated. We need to update our science curriculum, our social studies curriculum. Mm -hmm. And um, it's amazing how politicized this has become. Mm -hmm. uh, it should be routine, uh, but due to, I think, the national climate and the uh, definite attempt by the Republican Party uh, to uh, demonstrate outside the, um, the PED building and to uh, make this into another wedge issue, I think, uh, what should be routine has now become controversial. Mm -hmm. Dave, as Didi mentioned, the State Republican Party has been leading the charge here on this, but the feedback was pretty split down the middle. Uh, is Chairman Pierce just trying to get something going here, you know, trying to jump up the base? And well, if so, is he risking... Go ahead. Mm -hmm. I mean, listen, we never know exactly what anyone's motives are. But I would also say that, you know, the idea that we need to refresh and to look at at curriculum is a good point. But mm -hmm. the, the bigger overriding or overarching issue here is, and we saw it in the elections in Virginia, we see it. When someone that claims to have one set of values takes a position, it automatically causes someone that has another set of values, be a Republican versus a Democrat, to take the opposite position. Mm -hmm. I mean, we instinctively have this idea, if you do this, then I must do this. And, you know, we can't all just be a black key or a white key on a piano. 
they work together, you know, and I mm -hmm. think this whole idea is somehow we need to stop saying, because you believe in these things, I now believe in these, you know, not everything has to be reaction. There is, there are facts. Mm -hmm. There are things that we should be able to agree upon that are not just an opinion based on where you sit politically. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's absurd. It is, you know, curriculum, although I will tell you, I'm a great believer in teachers' abilities to teach what they believe to be the best thing i mean teachers mm -hmm. are trained professionals they are the king and queen of that classroom i think they they deserve our respect to do the right thing because i think the majority of them really do and you know these are this idea that curriculum should be top down i i agree that there should be some standards that everybody learns nationwide yet i think that also teachers really should be the ultimate decider on what gets taught mm -hmm. Hey, Tom, mm -hmm. oh, oh, go ahead, Dee, do you have a point there? Mm -hmm. I just can't resist because I used to mm -hmm. teach history uh, yes. in high school uh, long ago and mm -hmm. far away. And the teachers do have a, a critical role to play, but they must be allowed to present all the facts uh, and, you know, it, and, and, and not omit some of the facts that have been omitted in the past. Mm -hmm. I mean, I never learned about sojourner truth. Mm -hmm. I never learned about uh, Ida B. Wells or Chief Joseph or any of those people. Um, and so I think a teacher's role here is to um, get, uh, present the widest range of facts and uh, opinions and, and, and teach their students how to determine what is a fact what is an opinion right. uh, and uh, and this kind of critical and analytical thinking is what we really need in our schools mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. not the knee jerk not the balance where one side has equal weight to the other uh, but a critical facility Interesting. Uh, Tom, a little process question here. PED was only required to take public comment for 30 days, they extended that to 45 days, and stayed online for last Friday's public comments until everyone was heard. You know, they were limited to three minutes, but everybody got heard. Um, you know, is, this, is it fair? Was there enough time? Was there enough public comment in your view? Do they have enough information to make a, a good decision here? Yeah, you know, I, I think they definitely have input. Uh, you know, whether or not people feel like it was enough time or too much time, I think that really depends on where you stand, uh, not you specifically, but where the, the public stands on the issues being debated. Those mm -hmm. who don't want the changes will probably say there wasn't enough public input. Those who do want changes uh, would probably, you know, argue uh, just the opposite. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, it's uh, in, in some ways, you know, I mean, it was it was a needed public input. I don't necessarily think that the process is one, you know, that uh, there's input that's provided. Uh, you know, people, you know, weigh in. And, and sometimes it looks as almost as if uh, there are state agencies that will just do this to check a box mm -hmm. instead of really seeking genuine input. And, you know, when you have these, you know, kind of, um, you know, all call, you know, everybody, please state your opinions and then everybody go in peace type stuff. It's really hard to determine if it's if any of that is just really being absorbed and adapted mm -hmm. or if they're just really simply checking a box. That's a fair point. Mm -hmm. Interesting question there. Hey, Dave, one of the things that uh, Jacqueline Costales brought mm -hmm. up in that interview is how the Yazzie Martinez case impacts all mm -hmm. of this. Given the courts found New Mexico is failing some of its students, shouldn't the state make sure 
those students' histories are, in fact, codified into the curriculum. I mean, no doubt that we should we should codify things. And look, let's be real. The mm -hmm. world changes. You know, I was I mean, Didi was talking about the things that she was not taught about when she was or that she taught when she was teaching. We, you know, the word gay was never mentioned in well, many of my social studies classes. Right. So the world does change. And I think that the argument could be made. You know, what was what was relevant 50 years ago has changed. If you're teaching social studies and you're taking into the modern gay rights movement and the women's movement and, you know, all of these things, I do think that they have a place. I just feel like, you know, at some point we do, do we collectively bend to some authority that we trust because we've allowed elected them or because we've elected people that have appointed them. Do we trust somebody or do we have to simply second guess every single thing that we look at in terms of politics and policy? That's mm -hmm. the bigger question. Mm -hmm. Didi, I got, I got to remind you, of course, when we try to ch change the science. <laughs> yes, I was just going to say that. Yes, <clears throat> I was just going to say that in 1997, 1998, when I first came into the legislature, the big the big thing that was happening then was uh, there was a challenge to the teaching of science. And um, there were parents that came in and did not, and wanted um, creationism to be given equal time right. in the name of balance mm -hmm. to um, evolutionary theory. And, um, you know, that's, that's, that's what we have to beware of because that uh, rejects, um, rejects science in favor of the um, squeaky wheel. Mm. Tom, pick up on it if you would. Just got a minute or so here. Squeaky wheel problem, or do we have a legit, you know, issue? Do we need to just well, for balance? you know, I, mm -hmm. a little bit. You know, I'm, I am one who who supports balance. Okay. You know, I, I think you know, I, I think that you know, the social studies standards definitely should be updated. Uh, you know, it, but as I started off, you know, I don't think it needs to go to an extreme one way or the other. You know, we need to be able to make sure that all sides and all voices are heard at the table. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Dave, I got to throw in that more than 60 teachers were in on this involved in updating the standards. Yes. But other teachers said on Friday, resources, time, money, how are we going to manage all this? You know, is that a fair criticism? Absolutely. And I think that one of the things that we should be looking at is, you know, will the second part of the infrastructure mm. program get passed. Will there be resources for the education in this kind of thing? And how are we going to spend those resources? I mean, yeah. we are going to be having this type of discussion basically about a lot of things because if all of this comes through, I mean, you know, one half of the bill or $1.7 trillion is going to be up for grabs. Let's not waste it. Let's use it for a good, like for good things, you know? And if we have to like, I don't know. I just I, I think that, again, Didi's point about creationism versus the science, I think, is is really the relevant point here. We can't go crazy, but it seems like we always go crazy lately. You know, <laughs> we, we're, we lurch this way and then we lurch that way. And then everyone's like, why is everyone lurching? We need to stop lurching. You, yeah. know? you know, if yeah. I could just very briefly Please. add that, uh, you know, if these updates in the social studies standards uh, actually engage more students to get them more involved and help the proficiency standards, then I think that's all that's a very good thing good point. Uh, because you know that is the one thing that new mexico still lacks is the is the really positive graduation rate and if this helps the graduation rate uh, by making things a little bit more relevant in the classroom then i'm all for it good good place to finish it's all the time we have for that now on that issue but we'll be back in a few minutes to talk about the latest efforts to push back the new Me the new covid 19 surge happening right here in new mexico
Also this week is the return of Our Land with the uber-talented Laura Paskus. She does such great work keeping us all up to date on environmental issues in New Mexico. And this is a, a special interview. We're so fortunate to bring it to you. Uh, we uh, talked to Julia Bernal of the Pueblo Action Alliance. And it's a truly enlightening, eye-opening, ear-opening uh, interview about Julia's thoughts on how a feminist Pueblo perspective on water planning and water policy, what that would look like and why it might make a big difference here in New Mexico where we seem to be stuck in the mud, pun intended, I guess, on our water issues. As we know, water supplies are dwindling. Uh, Laura had a great report up on our website this week. We encourage you to go check it out about how far in the rears we are as a state in our water supplies, how we may be headed towards yet another lawsuit with Texas. The water planning does not look great. We also know this week that the state engineer, John D'Antonio, he uh, is going to resign and, and leave at the end of this year, in part because of the resources and budget given to his office. He says he was told to present a flat budget for next year while uh, we have got so many things to handle here, and we want to keep these decisions in our own hands and not in the hands of the courts. Okay, more on that on the website. I digress. Let's get back to this interview with Julia Bernal, which is also going to cover a couple phrases you might have heard of recently, water back and land back. What are those movements? What do they mean? And how does that all play into this feminist uh, Pueblo approach to water management? Our land is back. I'm Laura Paskus, and this month we're featuring Julia Bernal, Executive Director of the Pueblo Action Alliance. She and I talk about water and rivers, which are on everyone's minds right now as we face huge challenges in New Mexico. And she shares what it means to think about water from a Pueblo feminist perspective. She also talks about land back and water back, and we take a deep dive into what these movements mean for the health of the whole landscape and all of our communities. Julia Bernal, thanks for joining me on New Mexico in Focus. Thank you so much. <laughs> so I've heard you talk about a Pueblo feminist perspective on New Mexico's rivers and water. I was wondering, can you talk a little bit about what that is and how that's different from how we treat our rivers today? Sure. Um, well, thank you for having me on today. Um, so I've essentially been trying to push this narrative of the need for a Pueblo feminist perspective in water management specifically. Um, and this is because, you know, through, through a Pueblo perspective, you know, I'm only speaking from my own personal experience, um, femmes, um, women, are typically the the carriers of water. They hold water, um, and they're associated with water. And our understanding of water is is far greater, I believe, than um, you know what the dominant paradigm is offering to us, which is typically through you know a, a white male perspective. Um, and especially here in the Southwest and along the Middle Rio Grande, the Rio Grande Basin, if that. Um, Pueblo people have been stewarding, inhabiting, um, and being in relation with, with our waterways since time immemorial. Um, and women play 
and femmes play a very vital role you know in that relationship um, we view our waterways as mothers and you know this in innately gives us this spiritual and inherent relationship with our waters so you know we understand water in that way and so i think it's it's important you know now especially since we're in climate crisis you know climate has you know it's been changing historically over time but it's rapidly changing now and it's impacting how we live in you know with the community and how we're living with our communities um and so there needs to be radical and drastic change in how we manage our water and how we manage the watershed if that um and so I, I just really believe that if there are more feminist perspectives, Pueblo feminist perspectives in water conversations, um, management strategies would definitely shift. So lots of people have heard about land back. I'm interested in learning more about water back and what that means here in New Mexico. Yeah, um, I mean, land back is a is a global um, movement, and it's it's not about obtaining like property back. It's not about being like this was our land, and we're gonna you know we need to have like the property owner rights of it. Um, it's more about the resurgence of indigenous stewardship and management um, because we believe that you know what we do and our perspective is beneficial for everyone um, and the same thing with water so when we were thinking about what water back meant to us we thought about how tied land is to water and how important water is in Pueblo culture I mean a lot of our ceremonies and songs and dances really do revolve around speaking to, you know, our water gods and asking for um, abundance and healthy watersheds and healthy communities. That's very core to, you know, our ways of life and our and our worldview. And so again, if we were to have a resurgence of that indigenous worldview and identity and how we manage land and water, um, it would be beneficial for everyone. And also just that we need to shift the way we look at water. Um, the water to us, the Middle Rio Grande, that's our, our river mother. That, And so that is a reason why it's important for us to reassert that personhood because if we asserted a personhood on our waterways we'd probably treat her a lot differently <laughs> you know um, we'd probably have a lot more respect and acts of reciprocity rather than you know um, damming it and allocating it and you know um, with excuse me wasting it even um, and so water back is just really that same sort of concept as like what decolonizing is. I know that that's where it's been a little co-opted lately, but our definition has been, you know, removal of Eurocentric occupations and ideals and a resurgence of indigenous identity because that's the way this landscape needs to be managed. Um, and of course, you know, especially here in the Southwest, you know, water security, uh, water scarcity are real things and they're going to continue to be very real things. Um, and so if there is the opportunity um, for Pueblo people to 
reclaim their old management strategies, um, we may see the, the health of the river um, look a lot better than what it does now. So it sounds to me like, um, I think sometimes when people hear land back or water back, they get like really defensive and think about it in terms of, of, of colonizing basically, mm -hmm. like taking something, keeping it, but it sounds to me like what you're talking about is something that's really different from that, that it's land back and water back is something that benefits lots of people, many people, everyone mm -hmm. maybe. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, um, you know, decolonizing is a very long process. I mean, we've been in this period of colonization, you know, for like over 500 years now. Um, and so it's not about like going back in time, <laughs> you know, it's not about like going back in time where there wasn't like technology or there wasn't, you know, um, these human advances. Um, but it was a time where the land was viewed as our earth mother, the water was viewed as our water mother, and we took what we needed and also gave back. Um, and so we're also navigating a foreign language, you know, English. And so in order for us to convey these decolonial thoughts in English is always something too that we have to navigate. Um, land back has been, and water back have been two um, movements that seem to um, align with a lot of indigenous values, but also upset non-indigenous people too. So there's then again, now there's this need for a conversation around, uh, or even just creating spaces to really think deeply about what it means to decolonize. And we're still even, you know, in those conversations right now. Like, we don't have the answers now. There's a lot that needs to be undone, and there's a lot that needs to be learned. Um, but, you know, the way that water is, it's, it's, it moves, it, you know, and if it's stagnant, its quality gets really poor. And so, you know, we view water as a very transformative process. I mean, our river has been changing <laughs> so much over, over millennia. And um, we need to look at things in that perspective too. And also come to terms with the fact that we and I, we may never see, um, we might never see that change, but at least, you know, we're trying to create space and again, deep thinking for what our futures could potentially look like. Because at the end of the day, indigenous people, we have the inherent birthright to just enjoy our landscapes. And that's the ultimate goal, I think. Um, and inviting other non-indigenous people to also know like what it means for that enjoyment of the landscape. Um, again, it's beneficial for everybody and not just humans, non-human non relatives as well. Right. Well, Julia Bernal, thank you so much for talking with me today. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs>As always, we just can't get to everything in the show each week, but Julia Bernal stuck around to talk to 
uh, Laura Paskis a little bit more, and we want to bring that to you here, this part of the discussion, a little bit more on that feminist Pueblo approach uh, to water management in New Mexico. Also, Laura's going to ask her about what her sort of dream scenario would be for how we bring new perspectives to water issues in New Mexico. Important conversations. We know that uh, they are complex water issues for sure, but they need to be a top priority for this state. And the more conversations we can have about it, the better. So here now, more with Laura Paskus and Julia Burnell. And so how would that conversation look and feel different from kind of the legal and scientific narrative that mm -hmm. we have around the river today? Well, I mean, if you look at the policy side of water, it hasn't changed for almost two centuries now. Um, so there needs to be a whole reorganization of how we're managing water because it's changing. And the river has always been changing. Um, we, um, humans, we've definitely changed, drastically changed the, the physical characteristics and the hydrologic characteristics of the river. Um, and so now, being that, again, we're facing a severe climate crisis, um, we have to then think drastically about how we're gonna change the policy around it. Um, and historically, science and policy haven't always worked together. Um, I think that now there are beginning to be more uh, conversations about how science can also be that political tool and it can have some criticism and context on how to inform uh, policy management strategies, um, but it's, it's very political and the political climate of water and even just the way we manage natural resources, again, is a male-dominated field. And, you know, we're seeing more and more women and femmes and, and thems entering, you know, a lot of these water, environment, natural resources, you know, policy um, conversations um, because it, something has to happen and there needs to be able, there, need, there needs to be access in order for people like me to enter into those conversations because, you know, we bring creativity, we bring innovation, we bring perspective and it's time that there's some, some change, you know, happening around how we're managing our environment. So we're talking now in early September and the, the Rio Grande, in, in the middle of Rio Grande through Albuquerque, looks terrible. Mm. It's at a record low um, and for a record number of days. And farmers are having irrigation water cut off. Cities are, have had to stop drawing water from the river. Like, clearly, <laughs> there are big changes happening and we need to adapt and change in how we treat our river, how we rely on it. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what types of changes like you envision or even like just like dream could happen in mm -hmm. the coming decades. Well, I mean, before there was a lot of U.S. Western policy, water was really managed on a communal level, even the way uh, Sequia communities manage their water. It was very communal. It was consensus based. Um, same thing with the Pueblos. Um, and, 
you know, there's not really a lot of community participation. And unfortunately, we also manage water in a very market-based system. So how can we use water to the best beneficial use that's going to, you know, that's going to bring in revenue, that's going to turn a profit. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of eyes on the agricultural sector. Unfortunately, small traditional agricultural and water users are also lumped into that big agro sector. Um, and it's kind of like picking them off, you know, like um, water agencies are trying to buy water rights and buy farms, you know, and the smaller agricultural um, operations, you know, they contribute a lot to community capital and, you know, this whole fish versus farm thing needs to go because, you know, it kicks back to the Rio anyway, so it provides other ecological benefits and it's using water to sustain, it's using water to, you know, kind of Mm, just operate something real small but you know we have you know acre feet of water going to the Imperial Valley you know these big agro operations like in Southern California and you know we're seeing rising temperatures and so it's actually not really um, helping us and you know we live in an economy where we we you know produce for surplus and a lot of it is wasted and so you know if we think more about how we're changing um, community dynamics economic dynamics um, and include communities and traditional water users um, I think they could really impact how we're managing water um, but in terms of like what I dream um, it really depends on what the community wants, you know. Um, it really has to come from like a bottom-up type of system. Everybody's water use is different. Um, everybody's um, access to water is different, you know. You may have a community that gets this amount of water and this community upstream that gets this amount of water, you know. So you really have to work on like those small localized and regionalized um, issues. Um, so I don't know what the like the big end goal would be, but I guess essentially it would be we need to manage water a bit more equitably and consider um, the the climate stressors, you know. Um, we're also seeing an increase in urbanization. I mean, what is that going to do to our groundwater aquifers? Um, we're facing oil and gas here in the state. That's a huge strain on our groundwater resources. Um, now we're even seeing cannabis coming into the state. What is that going to look for lands and water resources as well? So, um, you know, that's why I just really emphasize on community participation because they are the ones that would come up with the best solutions. All right, let's send it back to the line opinion panel now for another discussion about the other big news here in New Mexico. I shouldn't say the other is an all-encompassing. There's so much going on this week. We're going to have more in our next episode as well. Uh, um, but this week we got a ruling from the state Supreme Court, that, uh, a case that was brought by lawmakers, bipartisan group of lawmakers, questioning the governor's authority 
to spend COVID relief funds from the federal government. And the court ruled after just about an hour of deliberations that the governor did overstep her bounds there. And so lawmakers in special session will have to get brought into that conversation. And until then, those dollars frozen largely for the most part. So quite a situation developing here in New Mexico. Expectations are that that uh, special session will get uh, glommed on to the top of one uh, already planned in December around the redistricting process. And predictions are that that could take a week as it was. So now it could be multiple weeks. The governor joked in her response to the court's ruling that lawmakers better not make hard and fast plans really from Thanksgiving through to Christmas. So we're in for an interesting uh, series, uh, really an interesting end of the year here. Uh, that's just a piece of the COVID discussion this week. Cases continue to soar. We're in the top five in the country in the number of COVID cases, even though our vaccination rate is one of the highest. We know that kids are now getting vaccinated. We're one of few states that are allowing all adults over the age of 18 to get vaccinated. We have the mask mandate, which is continuing for at least another three weeks or so. We, uh, these are all things the governor is doing in hopes of bringing those numbers down as our hospitals and our first responders just get pushed to the absolute max. So lots to talk about on the COVID front. Let's kick it over to Gene Grant and the Line Opinion Panel. New COVID-19 cases in New Mexico are once again rising, according to the most recent data from the state health department. In a press conference Wednesday, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham joined health leaders to talk about the situation. And during that update, health leaders pointed to waning immunity among vaccinated New Mexicans as one of the issues. That's pushed the state to join only a few others at this point, making the boosters available to all adults. The governor says they've become vital to controlling the virus as the CDC and FDA weighs nationwide approval. Now, will it help or is this all about our unvaccinated folks? So let me put that to Didi. It, you know, there's a lot of science out there that's saying the unvaccinated folks, this thing is mutating, things are happening, they're unwittingly sort of spreading this. How do we, how do we what's the next step here when it comes to unvaccinated folks particularly? Well, um, I think continued mm -hmm. mask mandates, especially for mm -hmm. unvaccinated people, uh, are important, but of course, how do you know who's unvaccinated and Good who's point. vaccinated? Mm -hmm. um, but I think the statistics are now that 23% of those people who are hospitalized have been fully vaccinated. Right. So that is the, uh, that's the problem now. And that's why boosters have been uh, opened up to everyone. And uh, I think that's very important. I got my booster a couple of weeks ago, mm -hmm. and uh, I think they're pretty widely available now. And I encourage everyone to get them. Mm -hmm. um, I'm all, I continue to be alarmed uh, by the rate of COVID spread amongst children. Ah. And um, this is now um, accounting for 25% of new COVID cases. So I think that in addition to getting um, boosters, children uh, have to be vaccinated. And mm -hmm. I think the, um, I think the statistics there are that there's only 6% of children from five to 11 years old mm -hmm. have been vaccinated. So we have work to do in that population mm -hmm. uh, as well as with uh, getting 
boosters to everyone who wants them anyway. Well, the health department's reporting 73% of state residents 18 and over are, are fully vaccinated, as you mentioned. 15% um, already have received a booster. 55% of kids 12 to 17 have completed the vaccine series. And of course, the 5 to 11 cohorts just kind of getting going, uh, and that's going to be interesting. David, according to recent reporting by the New York Times, New Mexico now ranks second in the nation for the number of hospitalizations per capita in the last two weeks and eighth in the number of COVID-19 cases. Yet we have one of the higher vaccination rates also per capita. Given that, was the governor smart to extend the indoor mask mandate for another month? Listen, I mean, anything that, that, that can help, and as Didi pointed out, masks, and there's just a new study out today from the CDC showing that masks can be very effective. Yes, I think she should. I mean, you know, I mean, the courts have been very clear. Unfortunately, with Doug, uh, President Biden, you cannot do a mandate. You know, they sort of moved the mandate away after the holidays. Businesses are saying they don't want a mandate. I think the problem is we need to get people to understand, you know, all of the things that you're hearing. I mean, I heard a story and I really just could not really figure out what to do with this story of someone who had had the vaccine. Their son immediately came over with a magnet to check to make sure that nothing had been inserted during that vaccination, the Bill Gates microchip or whatever. Wow. And I keep thinking to myself, like a number of people that have not been vaccinated have said to me, I'm going to study the vaccination. And I keep thinking to myself, and I have not said to them, although maybe I should, tell me again where your PhD in biochemistry is from and exactly what are you going to study <laughs> Like, you know, we need to encourage people to get the vaccine and we need to stop acting like a bunch of peasants that are hoping to turn, you know, dust into gold. It's not going to happen. I mean, you know, we are the country, of course, that went into complete whatever you want to call it, chaos with War of the Worlds in 1939. But hopefully we've progressed and we just need to say to people, get the vaccine. The science is safe. I don't believe that they're going to allow something to be injected into you that's going to kill you or cause mutation or whatever fantasy these people have been working out and they keep reinforcing it oh my god we don't know what the long-term effects are well we do know the long-term effects of covid you're dead so you don't want to do that true you know good point there uh speaking of that tom hospitals continue to suffer at one point this week there were only eight icu beds in the entire state and you and i'm impressed have both moved to crisis standards of care to make tough decisions as you know how to allocate, allocate resources. Have we hit a breaking point on this? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, when you look at the type of stress that is in the healthcare system right now, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's the, you know, the state is taking over and directing um, who goes to which hospital and who gets into a bed. So if you're injured in New Mexico, you have some real, um, you know, real challenges mm -hmm. of getting a hospital bed. Um, I think to harken back to one of the uh, items that Didi brought up earlier is that, you know, when you look at the number of people who are vaccinated, fully vaccinated in New Mexico, and you look at those who are in hospitalized, uh, that is, you know, that is a, a small percentage. But when you look at those who are in ICU or even on ventilators, uh, at least in, in one hospital numbers that I saw, it's zero. So we know that the vaccine works. We know that, you know, that, you know, those who have been fully vaccinated uh, are not necessarily, you know, gonna be, uh, you know, seeing the major effects like we're seeing with those who are not vaccinated. Mm -hmm. I think what we also need though, is a reset on information. Uh, to Dave's point, there's obviously a lot of misinformation still that's out there and now adding into the mix. 
is, you know, how long did the antibodies last? That's right. Uh, and so, you know, there was just a lot of, uh, you know, continued miscommunication. And I'm not sure where, you know, that needs to, you know, as far as who owns that particular mm -hmm. message, mm -hmm. you know, is at the federal level with, uh, you know, Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, and then everything kind of trickles down. Uh, you know, I wish it was that simple, but, you know, I think we, we all just need to hit that reset button on information and just look at the facts again, mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, the, the continued separated dialogue is not helping New Mexico residents. It's actually hurting. Well said. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a difference between inoculation and vaccination. That's always the confusing part I, I hear from a lot of folks. Didi, I've been yeah. dying to ask you this question. At the same time all this has happened, the state Supreme Court settled a legal fight over how New Mexico is spending federal COVID relief funds. The court, as you know, ruled in favor of four Democratic lawmakers challenging the governor's unilateral spending decisions. Now, the legislature has to get that spending figured out during an already jam-packed special session for redistricting by dragging out even longer. Could this end up backfiring from a political perspective for those lawmakers? Um, I, I don't know. I think that's a good question. But I want to say one thing about mm -hmm. this ruling, first of all. Please. And that is we need to separate two issues in terms of the governor's power and what the Supreme Court has said about it. The, the Supreme Court has affirmed the legislature's uh, authority to appropriate federal funds. Mm -hmm. It has also affirmed the governor's authority to make public health decisions when it comes to COVID. Mm -hmm. So it is not across the board repudiation of the governor's authority. It is simply affirming the legislative authority to uh, direct over a billion dollars in federal funds from the uh, for COVID mm -hmm. relief. Um, it's not even clear, though, whether this ruling applies to other federal funds mm -hmm. uh, other than the COVID funds. And I thought it was really interesting that, okay, so yes, the and I'm, I'm a fan of the legislator, legislature, of course, I'm a former senator, mm -hmm. um, but uh, the governor will have the ability, uh, once the legislature appropriates the funds, to veto them. So, I you know, see. we're we're kind of uh, we're kind of back to square one there. I hadn't I hadn't um, considered that. That's interesting. You're right. Oh, wow. We'll see how that plays <laughs> out. All right. Well, we're, we're all keeping our eye on those COVID numbers as we head into the holiday season. Thank you all for this insightful discussion. Still to come on the line reaction to new shakeups in Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham's administration. All right, that's it for this episode of New Mexico In Focus, the podcast. I'm Kevin McDonald, your host. We thank you, as always, for tuning in. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know what you'd like to see in an upcoming episode and want to make uh, sure you're aware of uh, our next episode should come out on Monday. We'll be talking more about redistricting, which I talked about earlier as we look towards the special session and what lawmakers will do with the recommendations from the Citizen Redistricting Committee. Again, this is a new approach to redistricting here in New Mexico. A lot of questions to be answered there. As well, we're going to talk some more about the changes in the Lujan Grisham administration. We mentioned the state engineer earlier that he is leaving, along with two other high-profile water officials in the state. We also know there are some folks coming in, including a familiar name, 
to serve as an advisor on infrastructure and help decide how almost $4 billion in infrastructure dollars are going to be spent here in New Mexico. All that and more coming up. Until then, have a great weekend. Stay safe and stay healthy.